What's up, guys? Welcome back to the What's True Health podcast. Today, we've got two very special guests from the Research to Practice podcast. We've got Andrew Natoli and Emily Walker. They're both, um, as I mentioned, from the Research to Practice podcast that we're a very big fan of, and they're also researchers and exercise physiology researchers, as a matter of fact. So uh, welcome on the podcast. Thank you. What a nice introduction, us. exercise physiology researchers. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're from UNSW important. as well. From, oh. there you go. That's the important bit, from UNSW, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, today's topic is going to be all about research and how to get into research, what even is research, how do we navigate research, and it's something I'm still struggling with personally. I don't know about you, Henry, but... And I'm a bit clueless even now, one year in. So hopefully having some more uh, people who've been in this space longer will be helpful. So I think the first question would be, what is your research, guys, just as an intro? And how did you get into research? How did you know that honors was something that you wanted to do? And yeah, just take it from there. Emily, I want I want you to go first. Okay. Why is that? Because my story is less interesting. Well, um, hey, no, everybody's <laughs> story is as interesting as each other. Um, it'd be nice to just build off of yours. Okay. So first question was, what is my research? I might do that question after how I got into honours. So long story short, if you want the slightly longer story, you can listen to um, our research practice intro podcast. I go into a bit more detail there. But basically, uh, in fourth year for us, we have the literature review subject or a research internship subject. You have to do one of them. And at the time, I had a lot of personal things going on and I just didn't have the capacity to do um, the research internship because that spans over two terms. Some people had to go in. Basically, you join a study and um, Andrew can talk about that a bit more. So... I did not have the capacity for that, so I chose the literature review subject, which is just one term for us. And, yeah, I was interested in chronic lower back pain. I don't actually remember my topic now, but it was something to do with how can we improve the management of chronic lower back pain. It was very, very, very broad. Um, And I went through the bit of the history, what hasn't worked, what is kind of working. I went through, like, um when clinicians are outdated or like when they have certain beliefs I went through patient expectations and like those sorts of things it was very very classic very very broad and I really really enjoyed that and I was sitting down with Andrew and we were talking about research sort of things and I was expressing I feel really sad I've missed out on the internship I feel like it was a one-time opportunity sort of thing and Andrew was like, well, why don't you just do honours? And I was like, what the fuck is that? Like, I had no idea what it was. All these, like, fancy university terms. And I was like, oh, I'm kind of, I've been preparing this whole year to go into clinical practice. And mind you, this was probably August-ish time last year. So we're nearly finished <laughs> our year and yeah, uh, Andrew just told me a little bit about it. You joined some research and I met, reached out to Matt and Mitch, who are our supervisors, and I was like, if I want to do it, I'm not 
saying that I am going to do it. If I want to, what do you have? Like what sort of um, studies or projects do you have? And, yeah, obviously I decided to do it and it is definitely <laughs> the best decision. Um, absolutely loving it. And that leads me to my project this year, which was basically how physiotherapists and exercise physiologists um basically what their barriers and enablers are to implementing evidence-based practice. So I ran a whole qualitative study and we just finished it. We've got our speeches tomorrow to finalise the year. They better not be tomorrow because I'm not ready for tomorrow. They're not tomorrow. It's <laughs> Monday. You can tell. It's just ex- I'm so confused what day it is, man. All right. Wait, so just a quick question there, Emily. What's... What was your your original like degree? What was your degree again? Was it exercise physiology? Oh, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. How, how much like throughout that whole degree? What was your exposure to research in your like sort of in your learn like throughout the you know yeah. years? Is it? Yeah, so it's four years. I, I we always had it around like subjects, and I remember the first few times having to like reach out to PubMed to find some articles, but it was just. I didn't know what to write in and so many articles came out from that and so what I typically would do is I'd write my assignment and then just find points to back it up which is not what you should do um and not what I do now um so overall not much we did have a research subject in term one of fourth year which actually went through like what did it go through some it was a lot of team, like a team-based yeah. thing, really, and how to work in a team to find your answers um, for practice and things like that. Yeah, and like a gap in the market slash sort of literature sort of thing. Uh, so that that was actually one subject for it, and then the next was research internship and literature review. So not much. Okay, so you'd say you picked up a lot of those skills in terms of research later on in your degree and as you moved into honours? That was Andrew's influence entirely. Like I was really passionate. I found just in general things really interesting and Andrew had some skills and background already like before me and um, looking into research. So that's when we kind of spoke and then we decided to create a journal club, which we ran for like a a decent amount of time. We did a bunch of um, topics. That's actually where I learned most of my research stuff doing mm-hmm. that, going through papers, talking to Andrew, being like, what does this mean and how do we dissect this? So, yeah, I would say how Andrew. Did you, how did you get the journal club up and running? Because I know, like, Victor's sent, there's this, what is it, Victor? Who's in it? Like, I'm trying there? to set up a journal club, but it's not been successful so far. No, no one replies. And I'll just try like, next year. But, yeah, yeah I don't even know you guys had a journal club. That's that's good. Yeah, we should, we should start it again and then yeah. Victor and Henry can takeover but um we actually were really lucky we had a group of friends that were interested and so it was basically like eight of us max um and going through these topics each week discussing them we did make it a broader thing we um made it a page and invited people to this group uh it wasn't as successful because yeah I think it's a bit harder when we're not posting in it, but also reaching out to people, asking for their time and also research is not necessarily like the coolest thing up on <laughs> up front. So yeah, it's really hard to do. 
What are you talking about? Research is the coolest thing. How's your journal club going then? Not good. It's it's a single a single member so far. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very much to do with consistency, and that's something Andrew and I don't do very well. <laughs> no, not at that time. <laughs> um, I guess it's my turn then, is it? Um yeah, I'm glad you brought the journal club in because I was like, oh, she forgot about the journal club, but no, that's great. Um, and like also, it failed for us because, you know, it's really hard to get people amongst it, but it failed even while I had some influence at the uni because I was in the exercise physiology society and I was one of the presidents of it. So like I could actually get word further out there and even then it was hard. So keep trying guys and maybe we could even build something together you know across the unis who knows but um about a little bit about me and how i got into research like i want to say the first thing that really got me into it because i didn't really know if i was going to go clinical or going to go research route um but my own analytical mind frame my mindset kind of pointed me down that route um and when i got the first opportunity to do the research internship which Emily already mentioned, um, I jumped at it. And I have, I've got a lot of people to thank for that actually, but first and foremost, my current supervisor, Dr. Mitchell Gibbs, I've got him to thank because he actually reached out to me. And that was after I showed some interest during third year in his um, RCT, his powerlifting RCT on chronic low back pain. Um, and I think he kind of saw that I was interested in the research and reached out to me and said, Hey, I got a project for next year. Do you want to join? And I was like, yeah, of course I want to join. So didn't look back from there. Um, and that was on, actually it was originally on a paper that is now published on chronic low back pain um, and meeting the guidelines. It was a secondary analysis of Jill Hayden's review from 2021, but that evolved into something else where I made my own survey, um, which then worked into my honours. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I kind of explained everything good there. Em, did I leave any gaps? I don't even know. Yeah, what was the survey? What was your honours? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll get to that now. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the um, honours itself that I've done this year, like I said, springboarded from that survey. It was looking at the perceptions of exercise that people held when experiencing chronic lower back pain. So, you know, everybody has beliefs and they believe certain things about exercise, but we don't actually know how people perceive those exercises. And that was important to know. And there's literally only one meta synthesis, right? So that's like a meta analysis with qual data um, of exactly this topic. And even that in the conclusions said, there is a paucity, like a very small amount of information on this. So I was like, okay, hey, Mitch, and also um, Emily's main supervisor, Matt, can we keep looking into this? So we did um, semi-structured interviews and interviewed people about it. It was really fun. Metasynthesis. I haven't heard that word at all. Yeah, me neither. I saw Victor's word. like face get really excited when he said that word. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. There's not much exposure to qual research. So did you pick, to, like, did you want to do qual or was like, did you have an option at all? That's a great question. Um, 
I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to do research and I took anything I had. Um, the very first time they proposed um, a survey to me, I looked at it and I was like, oh, so this is qualitative. And I already knew what qualitative was because I had my sister do her own theses during um, uni and they were both qualitative. So when I said to them, oh, is this going to be a thematic analysis? They said, yeah, it is. And then I had to learn how to do a thematic analysis because we hadn't been exposed to it at all either throughout the whole degree. Nothing was, you know, qual related at all. So um, can't say that I, I wanted to, but I loved doing it anyway. What about you, Emily? Um, I think the nature of my project, like what I wanted to look into this year, it had to be qualitative. I started first with trying to make it a survey and I wrote up the list of questions and sent it to my supervisors and I was like, okay, this is what I want out of <laughs> the study. And they were like, that's way too in-depth. Like no one's going to give you answers in a text box, uh, text box on a survey. So that's why we made it interviews. But um, yeah, uh, similar to Andrew, I guess I didn't really know, but I knew what type of research I wanted to do. I just didn't know that that was specifically qualitative. Nice. That doesn't make sense. I knew like <laughs> what I didn't know the type, but I knew <laughs> what I mean is like I knew the things that I wanted to look into, like the topic, which, but I didn't know that that topic would have been best addressed through qualitative. That's probably a better way to say it. Okay, cool. So, yeah, my question to both of you, just bringing it all back in, is sort of how much value do you see in research and why Why are you guys so passionate in research? Is it is it something you guys, like, genuinely love doing? Is it something, like, why, why do you guys do research? I would like to know what you mean by value. Okay as in like how, how you value research yeah like you've said um like how much value is there in research like okay uh, okay how to you how important is research in the world of health right so like what sort of impacts it can make yeah. or is it yeah. necessary how important is it Ooh. do you want to say anything to that andrew I have a whole yeah. bunch of things. I think it's incredibly important because it is what we base mm. our practice on, right? Yeah. Evidence-based practice. We need some evidence to go off of, right? Um, I mean, value-wise to me, research has so much value just personally to me. But, yeah, for uh, within um, the health Both. realm, allied health care, we need it. We need a guideline to go off of. Um, yeah. That's like research in general. Then asking the question of like how much value is the research that's happening in currently for us and what has been done, that can be another question, like a different sort of answer as well, that some research um, and we're finding this is a big thing is that uh it's not necessarily made for clinicians all the time and the same things are kind of being researched. And so there's, I'm noticing there's a bit of like a research world and who gets the money to do more research and what sort of topics that's on. So the type of research that actually is happening 
isn't necessarily by choice. There's things that kind of make that the way it is. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah, I know what you mean. Unlimited, and then, just, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then so what research could be done in the field that might be more valuable, that's another another question. So, yeah, as a blanket thing, yes, it's very important. I think that's a good question, especially for students, because as we mentioned before, no one really has an interest in research at all. Yeah. Then realizing and asking yourself why is research important? And I think getting that out to students, that it is the basis of your practice. It's the the, the foundational pillars of your practice. I think yeah. that would then allow students to recognize the importance of the yes, they should be reading papers, they should know what's um what the current research is like. So I think, I think there's always a moment. That. Sorry, I think there's always a moment when someone realizes. Sometimes it's later on, sometimes earlier, in their degree or any any time within their career that they realize how important it is. It, it might yeah. be just yeah. the assumption that uni, uni will teach you everything. Mm. And yeah, exactly. yeah, I'm doing excess physiology at uni, so I'm going to learn excess physiology. But excess physiology now, or even just health now, won't be the same in five, 10 years. So what you're learning now isn't particularly relevant so, uh, for, for the future. So not engineering or like, yeah, I think as well, it's really important to think like, to understand, well, why can't my clinical reasoning, oh, sorry, my clinical, reasoning, my clinical experience be the pillar? Why does it have to be research? Mm. I would answer. So, uh, now, one thing I'd say is fallacies. There's a lot of fallacies that can happen when you use your own experience to add evidence to a claim. So things like post hoc fallacy, just because something happened after you did the treatment doesn't mean it was the treatment. So those, yeah, just if you search up fallacies, Andrew taught me about fallacies, but all those, just yeah, look at fallacies and you see so many things and you realize, oh, Maybe my personal experience isn't as important. And furthermore, ha not having a control group to compare with makes it really hard to set to exclude one thing out of your treatment plan as being the cause of the effect, if that makes sense. So yeah. th that's yeah. what I'd say. Causation yeah. is hard to actually narrow down, right? So clinical reasoning through having experience can be important but you need a basis to base that off of. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, you need a good balance of both, sort of. Definitely. So then what would be an, oh, would there be a situation where, because to me, evidence, evidence is much more important in telling you the true cause, right? But when would your personal experience then be of value and what comes to my head is Sick. what the patient like patient expectation sort of thing yeah exactly and I, I'm gonna I, hand Emily's, this to Andrew <laughs> <laughs> I can see Emily smiling because she knows where my mind's at so the, the the first part of that whole like statement that you said as well is, is evidence right I think one really big thing is that people forget that uh, clinical reasoning and experience is evidence for us it's quality of the evidence right and do we mean literature or do we mean evidence, right? 
because yeah literature can be a form of evidence but so can like oh i did this to susie over here and then this happened that's evidence right um it's just you know when fallacies come into it like you said victor it changes things um it's like that's the first thing uh and i'm gonna admit i've forgotten the rest of the question where, where was so it meant we, to go yeah should we is there any value in those yeah. anecdotal experiences that are um lower quality i guess well, should we put any yeah. value because they're low quality right yeah well yeah exactly uh, short answer yes right way more nuanced answer that i actually be able to be used and get you somewhere is anecdotes in themselves like single isolated events right they don't tell you causality of something right but they do give you something to go off of and they give you context for a very specific environment and a person per se and that's actually the that's where qual data can be really important because we, we understand the experience of what's happening with somebody. And then we can apply that to situations in which we see that exact thing happening again. Right. So it, from a qual study, you're never going to be able to generalize and be like, this is what caused this. That's why we do RCTs because they, they look at causation, they control for things. Um, but if you're in the clinic and you know that, oh, when I have older clients, like above the age of 70, 80, and I tell them to pick up a barbell, they're often scared of it. So because of that, I'm gonna tell them, hey, let's try a dumbbell lift from a platform. So it's not as much range of motion, doesn't look as heavy, right? There is no evidence out there, no literature to tell me people over the age of 70 don't like to lift barbells because they're heavy but there is a lot of literature on fear avoidance behaviors so i've taken my context of the clinical situation with my experience right with older clients and the literature of fear avoidance behaviors and put them together to get an outcome clinically mm. right so that's where it becomes important so you're using the your experiences and interactions with the patients at, as the the value of the anecdotal experience rather than saying this is causing this yeah That's and then great. i can check in like uh, i might have a client and actually two perfect examples 75 year old client 76 year old client right i had one come in scared to lift the barbell no problem right so we actually started uh lighter then moved towards the barbell after that happening i then had a 76 year old client and knowing that from my past I went and started with the dumbbell and she did it no problem. She was like, oh, this is easy. Can we do the barbell? I said, sure, right? So I was able just to double check based on my previous um, experience there, right? Um, and now I know, hey, I can just ask, how do you feel about the barbell, right? So I don't even need to waste time anymore. So it's like slowly getting to that really streamlined position. This is gold. What do you think, Henry? No, I think it's... I agree with everything you're saying there. There's um obviously it's based off always context of the situation. And they're definitely not they're not things you work with separately. You work with them together and at once. So you can sort of use what's needed in terms of uh your own sort of your own sort of anecdotal opinion, but also limiting that to what you know and also using 
the other side of things with that. 100%. Em, do you have anything? Yeah, I'd say, like, bring it back to the point, I think, Victor was trying to, well, asking, like, what's the value or what could be the value for anecdotal yeah, evidence, was yeah, it? Yeah. I think, like, asking yourself, what sort of information do I want out of this literature or evidence? So first, like, the intention of what you're trying to find out or look for and why you're trying to find it out. So if, yeah, you're wanting to learn a little bit more about how people perceive something, you're not going to necessarily go to an RCT for that. Like, do you know what I mean? So there's, like, different literature for different reasons um, and it all is really valuable and can kind of compound on each other. So um, bringing in, you guys know, like, the hierarchy? Yeah. Yeah, so we should start to dismantle that thought process <laughs> and start to think about how the literature can work really well with each other. So what's oh. an example? Are you oh. saying that the, the pyramid is is a conspiracy? <laughs> Depends what pyramid you're talking about. Um, the I'm not oh. saying it's a conspiracy. Um, I'm just saying that if we think about it as like, RCTs are the best and we're going to learn everything from them, then you don't know what the value is of the other research and how it can also help your practice. Like if we are constantly looking at RCTs, there's a whole lot we would not know about what people think, about what people do, about, yeah, yeah different contexts, like all that sort of stuff. You know, um, think about, and to you guys as well, uh, Victor and Henry, think about the context of that pyramid as a whole. There is no discourse analysis on there. There is no phenomenological analysis on there. Basically, qual as a whole, right? It, it's not even there. Why? Because, well, they're placing their value, right, in causation. Mm -hmm. But it's not about finding what causes all the time. It's finding how can this data be helpful? Yeah. So that's why breaking it down and not worrying about the hierarchy, but rather, hey, I want to look at this study. How's that helpful to me? Oh, yeah, because of this. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah. What, what we've been taught, sorry. Um, what we've been taught is basically like RCTs are the best. Uh, what's yeah, it we've been taught very systematic. Meta analyses, you'll get your answer straight away. And like, oh, yeah, cohort studies and, um, like animal studies, those like lower tier ones, like yeah, we learned a little bit about them, but we, the way I interpreted it was they're basically trash, they're low quality, we can't really rely on them. Yeah. So that that really changes my my bias, I guess, from what, what I've learned at uni. So they're but, the best for this thing and these are the best for this thing. Mm -hmm. So qualitative are the best for learning about people's experiences. They are not the best for generalizability. They're not the best for cause and effect. Okay, well, if that's not the best, then what can be the best? RCTs or this or that. So it's like, it's like, what is the function of that research? Why do I need it? What can it tell me? Rather than like, this is the best research that is outdated biomedical. Yeah. And like we fall into the issue of, and this is what M gets meant before, like uh, research isn't always for clinicians, it's for other researchers, for further research.
because we see these RCTs and it's like, oh, the ACL, um, let's say ACL paper, right? They have to have no meniscus tear, no other tears of any sort, and they have to, you know, have XYZ history and blah, blah, blah. And then clinicians see that and they go, oh, well, that doesn't apply to my client because they've also actually got a meniscus tear and have had a previous injury of blah, blah, blah. So I can't use that study, right? Because they're looking for an exact cause that fits exactly their client's presentation, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, how can this be helpful to me, right? Okay. So you're saying, you go, Henry. Yeah, you said qual studies, basically, they help us in what do you mean by help us in sort of what what areas do they help us with other studies with clinicians that sort of stuff so if we've got a jam jar imagine a jam jar and we've got a label on it and it tells us that it's strawberry jam cool does it tell us what like how much sugar how sugary it is does it tell us how sour it is does it tell us if there are actual strawberry chunks in it? Does it, like, there's so much information. Does it tell us if it's red or they've actually dyed the strawberries blue or that you just can't see that it's red or something because you're colorblind, whichever way it works? But, like, does it tell us how I think it tastes or does it tell us how, Henry, you think it tastes? Nothing. It just tells us it's strawberry jam and we will all assume all the other parts. So it's good to know it's strawberry jam because I would, like, it would be confusing if it had a label of lemonade juice on it. I don't know. But, like, so quantitative is, like, cool, gives us an understanding. Qualitative is, like, gives us a deeper understanding of that. Hopefully that helps. Otherwise, that Andrew, apply can... to the person? No, that's perfect. Is that a question? That was beautiful, Emily. Yeah, that's it. Because, you know, the, the label of something, the, a number uh, given to something can only tell you so much. doesn't tell you how you're going to experience that thing. Yeah. It's, it's crazy because even though I am aware of biomedical model, biopsychosocial model, and like, yes, I'm still trying to understand those. And... It's just weird because something that I thought was innocent in my mind, like the evidence hierarchy, is actually not not as it's yeah it's in, it's outdated and biomedical and like I'm reflecting on how there might be more things like that and how could I pick it up later on like you know what I mean so things that I thought were might be BPS aren't BPS but having that understanding of I guess critiquing everything that you believe to be true is the only way to. Exactly. Yeah. And if I can even just give a little critique on what you've just said as well, and also for people listening, just in case it's not a dichotomy um, all the time, it's not, it's, it's A or it's B. With the biomedical model itself, yes, it's less helpful than the biopsychosocial model, but the actual philosophical underpinning of reductionism is actually really helpful sometimes understanding the constituents so just just so everyone knows what reductionism is it's breaking a complex system down to its smallest parts its constituents to try and figure out something about the whole system through using its constituents right so 
you know, classic studies of like, oh, you've got back pain. Cool. Let's have a look at your transverse abdominus and how that fires. That'll tell us more about your back pain. Obviously not the case. But in other situations, and this is more just in our clinical reasoning, if we break things down to its smaller bits, it can be more digestible for us. So it's not about like, oh, this is good, this is bad. It's like, this is good for this, this is good for this, this is bad for this, and it's bad for this. And you use them for different reasons, right? So yeah, reductionism can be helpful mm -hmm. in itself. I think this, oh, wait, there's two things I want to say. One, mm -hmm. which I'll answer after, but were you asking Victor, like, for advice on how to... I guess so. Like, be more yeah. Okay, ask that after. This first one, um, I just want to note on what Andrew's saying is it's really important, important not to chuck, get biomedical out. I think specifically with pain, we've had so much biomedical research that we're realising that it's not as important. So if you go to, like, another field, let's say cancer or something, then they're, like, continue what you're doing, I don't really know what they do. But, like, that's really important for them to be reductionist in terms of, like, specific drugs or specific um, proteins or whatever. Yes, there's still going to be a person and, like, how they um, respond to treatments and things like that. But that case can be, like, really important to have both. And I'm not saying that one research is better than the other. We still need to know how cancer survivors experience the drug and what are the symptoms they get and what it feels like to have support and not support. Like that's just as valuable as finding a protein or drug or whatever. hope that makes sense there. So, yeah, both types of research are really important. They give you a different thing. In terms of like pain, we've done so much biomedical stuff that it is slightly more okay to say that we might not need it as much as like other types of research. And that's why we can be very heavy and be like, this is so reductionist, blah, 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 blah. It's because we keep doing the same things and seeing the same things mm -hmm. in terms of like the type of studies that we do. Does that make sense? So there's more. So with the cancer example you're saying that it's it's kind of okay to focus a little bit more on the bio component because because it's more of like a life or death situation in a way is that would that point be valid at all that would be like part of it um i think it's more that we're seeing how biopsychosocial pain is versus like a specific disease like okay, okay. health in general is biopsychosocial i'm not saying that one's more or less but like we're seeing now that like pain itself is not necessarily just a biological thing whereas mm -hmm. in cancer you could say it that it's pretty biological okay. i'm not saying that other factors aren't influencing that but yeah, Andrew, help me out. <laughs> am I, am yeah. I making sense? I think, yeah, I think also there's a bit of a difference between um, how we do things in research versus how we do things clinically as well. So like being biopsychosocial as a clinician, it's pr you pretty much have to be, right? You're dealing with humans, you've got to be holistic. But um, when we talk about research, we can break things down and we have to break things down to answer uh, good narrow questions to get good answers for those questions. Like that's important. 
Um, and I think, Victor, what you're saying with the whole when it's life and death situation, it's okay to look at things a bit more biomedically because you know this drug is going to do this for your cancer, therefore you have to take this drug, right? Side effects, doesn't matter. I want you to live and I'm the doctor making that decision for you. It's very autocratic, very I'm making the decision, very this is how the chemistry works, this is how it's going to go, right? Um, maybe that's more what you're getting at as well, yeah, like when you yeah. focus on that, when you're prescribing something as like a, a doctor. Um, I think Emily's also talking a little bit more to like the research side of it and pain specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I feel like doctors are very much biomedical in their sort of approach, whereas EPs can appreciate the more BPS model. Yeah. And there's a excuse. lot of reasons that go into that as well. Like a lot, that could be a whole podcast. <laughs> Still not an excuse to only be uh, the biomedical model though. Still Agreed. science. Yeah. Like, like, yeah like if you go to extremes like a cardiologist or something like that or like a i don't know even like cancer as well it's the same thing i guess it's harder to, to um adopt the psychosocial model yeah i think in practice always treating the human and i was definitely referring more to research and the type of research coming out like we've already done heaps of research on like muscle dysfunctions and all of that sort of stuff in this space so yeah i think that's why it warrants moving on and seeing yeah more things anyway second thing was how do we oh like how do you stay critical and that oh, sort of yeah, thing yeah. honestly i would say biggest things are what you're doing so listening to podcasts talking to people talking to clinicians reaching out to other researchers um joining journal clubs just any resources that um, talk about this stuff. Like, Andrew, how did you start? What did you reach out to? See, it's always interesting when people, like, ask me that because I just brute forced it. Like, I would just be like, oh, like, how do I figure out this question? I'll just look up a million videos on it and slowly find an answer, right? Uh, well, over time, I've realised a really quicker, nicer way to do that is to, like you said, join a journal club right or go somewhere where you're almost forced to do a little bit of the work like sometimes in a journal club they'll be like oh we got to read this paper cool i got to read this paper by the 13th of whenever because that's when journal club is so you got a reason to do it as well right um and like a really big thing being critical is understanding how reasoning and how informal logic can be really really helpful as well as formal logic um I feel like that needs to be taught a lot more. And um, actually, the Knowledge Exchange has a really good course on that. I don't know if you know the title of that, M, but it's like decoding science or something like decoding that. Decoding research, yeah. Decoding research, yeah. Critical thinking skills that you learn from courses like that can be really helpful, like going to them or doing them online. Um, yeah, I, I think just reading a lot more too, like self-help books, mm. things like that will help you think more, reflect more on your life. Yeah. Mm. Agreed. I think that's a good uh, point to end it off on. Henry, do you have any sort of final thoughts? I think that was great for anyone who hasn't been exposed to much research before to get that sort of insight into what you guys are doing and what got you there. Um, yeah, it's great. And I'm looking forward to the next um, geometric shape that will replace the pyramid. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh man 
yeah, whatever it will be. Maybe just a circle with all of the things inside of it to say this is all the different types of research. Yeah, <laughs> and they're all just, there's, the, everything's just an atom and they're bouncing off each other. Mm, yeah. Something real abstract, like we don't even need a shape anymore because <laughs> it's all conceptual anyway. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for coming on and taking your time. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy day. Yes. But yeah, um, thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you next week, hopefully.